Hi, I'm Nicole. And I'm Desiree. We are both mothers who run a support group for perinatal loss. Through our group, we have met many wonderful families and have had the honor of hearing about and sometimes meeting their beautiful babies. We notice that families feel relief when they can share openly and feel seen when they meet others who are telling similar stories. So we created this podcast as a space for families to share the stories of their babies. We want to honor and remember these children. We want to help you navigate your life after loss. And most importantly, we want each story to give you hope. So please join us as we share these stories of grief and love. Welcome to the Blindsided Podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Blindsided Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole, here with Desiree and Jackie. Hi, everyone. Hi, guys. Jackie Mancinelli is our guest here today. Um, She's going to tell us the story of her son, Richard. So Jackie, tell us uh, about how you got pregnant with Richard. Maybe we can start there. Yeah, so uh, Richard was actually our second pregnancy. Um, Our first pregnancy, um, my husband and I decided we finally wanted to start a family. Figured it would be very easy, right? Uh, We always hear how easy it is to get pregnant. Um, We fell pregnant and uh, got almost to the end of the first trimester before I found out that I was having um, what's called a missed miscarriage. And so I ended up having um, a D&E for that pregnancy. So about seven months later, fell pregnant with Richard. And we were terrified to be pregnant again, excited, but terrified because we were really worried that we would um, miscarry again. But once we cleared all of the ultrasounds, got through that first trimester, we figured that it was going to be really easy. And, you know, falling pregnant with him was fairly easy. Um, I feel guilty saying that because I know how many families struggle, but that was the, really the only easy part of the pregnancy. How did you and your husband make the decision or come to the decision that you are ready to start a family and how was your pregnancy? So my husband and I, when we decided to start having a family, uh, we had been married for several years. Both were already, you know, several years into our careers and I'm a high school English teacher. So when we began um, trying for a baby, I had already been teaching for maybe five or six years. And I was 28 at the time. Uh, So, you know, fairly young, I think. But we were, we had finished, like I finished my master's degree. And I felt like I was ready to finally start having a family. And for Richard's pregnancy, it was, it was pretty easy. Um, I loved being pregnant everything, even like all the aches and pains, it felt okay. Because I'm a very petite person. And watching my body grow, I sometimes looked in the mirror and felt like I was looking at a different person. But it was exciting. And (laughs) as a high school teacher, my students thought it was hilarious, like how much my body was changing. Uh, Because I'm only four foot 10. So seeing like, a beach ball basically underneath of my shirt was really mm-hmm. crazy for them. Um, and, you know, Richard was always incredibly active as a baby. 
So there would be times where I'd be standing in front of my class and my students would see his like legs move. And, you know, some of the students would be in awe of it, but most of them were pretty grossed out by it. Uh, They thought it was the most bizarre thing. And then they were (laughs) terrified I was going to go into labor in the middle of class. They were so scared and they were like, oh, during class. Yeah. And they said, it's, you know, well, there are a lot of adults in the building. We'll be able to get some help. Well, so you call the nurse. Yeah. The pregnancy, you know, it was, um, it was pretty good and lots of enjoyable moments. My husband and I just really looked forward to, you know, bringing a baby home and starting as a family of three. So when, when did things change for you guys? Did you get a diagnosis? Did you have a diagnosis or? What happened with Richard? Actually, so I went for my um, my regular monthly appointment at 33 weeks along, and perfect. I mean, perfect heartbeat, um, totally normal growth. Everything seemed to be fine for 33 weeks. You know, we talked about my birth plan, uh, what we wanted for delivery. We even talked about, because we knew we were having a boy, So we even talked about, um, you know, if we wanted to do like a circumcision or anything, like we were really looking toward delivery, but then, uh, 33 weeks, five days, as much as my students were worried about me going into labor, um, I did go into labor while I was teaching, but I didn't know I had gone into labor. Um, I was having back labor and I thought, Over the weekend, um, so beginning with Saturday before he was born, um, I had a stomach ache. I didn't really feel well, uh, very fatigued. But again, 33 weeks along, I thought that would be normal. His movement had slowed. Mm -hmm. And like I said, he was a really active baby. He would normally get 10 kicks in just a few minutes. And... I knew that his movement had slowed. I remember um, we, my husband and I were getting ready to go to a car dealership to buy a new family car, one that would fit this new car seat. <laughs> and I drank orange juice. I laid on my side. I did everything that at that time I thought was right. I went on Google. I did not call my doctor. And I saw the outdated advice of 10 kicks in two hours. And then I figured, I know he's usually really fast. I'm small. Maybe he ran out of room again. Not accurate. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I thought it was fine. But that was like his first signs of distress. And then the following day on Sunday, um, I felt even worse. But again, I thought it was fine. I had a healthy appointment a few days before. So by the time I went to work on Monday, I was feeling pretty miserable And then I had back pain just all day. And normally I don't sit very often at work, but um, I sat that day. And one of my students that um, I still keep in touch with now, he's like 24, um, he he looked across the room and he had mouths to me. He was like, are you okay? And then he stayed after class. He's like, you don't look well, like you're sitting down, like, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I went to the doctors um, that afternoon because I called them. I said, I'm having back pain. I don't know what's going on. And the midwife that I had met with that day said she was a little bit nervous. 
and this was all after the fact. She didn't tell me at the at the time. She yeah. was nervous. But they had me sit down for an NST and so the non-stress test and Richard failed like several of them. So he was hardly moving oh, wow. at all. So she was still trying to put on a brave face, but um, I could tell she was very anxious. And she said, you need to go to the hospital and get further testing. So I called my husband. I said, you know, I'm actually like having contractions. The baby might be coming. He didn't do well on the tests, but we're going to, can you meet me at the hospital? So he ended up meeting me and, um, I was monitored for several hours and Richard, um, continually failed all the non-stress tests. And then finally we did, um, a biophysical profile ultrasound and he, he failed everything. And I remember looking at the screen and since this was like our first, like almost full term pregnancy, we had only had maybe two ultrasounds. So I remember being so excited to see him on the screen again. And then I'm looking and I'm watching the ultrasound technician's face and, you know, they're trying to put on a poker face, but I knew that he was barely moving. Um, I could tell his heart was beating, but she just looked like she was not reading a very good scan. Um, And then as soon as that was over, my midwife came over and said, He's in distress. He's not handling any of your contractions well. His heartbeat isn't coming back as quickly. Um, We think that we need to do an emergency C-section. And we think that, you know, he'll be, he just needs a little help from the NICU. So we think it's just better for him to come out. Yeah. I'm terrified. No, you were just at school a couple hours before. (laughs) (laughs) So this was like a crash C-section. And everything is all of a sudden moving very quickly. My husband throws on scrubs and, you know, they are prepping me. They're saying, um, you know, congratulations, mom and dad, before we go into the OR. Everyone's still really happy and excited. And when we went into the OR, um, I couldn't feel any of the pain but I could feel a lot of the pressure. So I knew that they were rushing because I had subsequent C-sections after this and they were not the same. So I know that it was rushed and it was silent when he was pulled out. Um, There was no cheering. There was no bringing him over to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I could hear the midwife and my OB um, talking about a lot of blood. And they couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And I heard them ask if it was a placental abruption. Like they're having this discussion. And I have like the screen in front of me. So I can hear bits and pieces of conversation. So I'm asking my husband. I'm like, can you see anything? Do you know what's happening? He has no clue. Yeah. And this poor guy. We had a resident in in the delivery room. This poor guy, he was maybe early 20s, and he's trying to kind of translate all the doctor speak for us, and I can tell he's really uncomfortable, but he was awesome the whole time. But um, yes, so 
fast forward a little bit when the happening was that um, the NICU team they usually have in the OR for C-sections like doubled and then tripled. There were so many people coming in and my husband's watching everything. I see everything happening in a flurry off to the side. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. I'm asking questions. No one's answering. And then um, they take Richard away, our son. And I tell my husband, yeah. like, go with him. Because he's not sure. Do I stay with you while you're having this yeah. major surgery? Do I go with our son? So I'm thankful that he did go with him. Because um, over the course of the next hour, um, the NICU team was trying to uh, keep him alive. And what we learned was that Richard had suffered... Um, a fetal maternal hemorrhage. It was spontaneous. It's incredibly rare. But basically what happened was that the all of his blood left his body and went through the cord through my through the placenta and then entered my bloodstream. Oh my so the stomach ache, the fatigue, the overall like not feeling well and then the preterm labor was all caught. So it can happen that. slowly? Like it's not something that like happens like all at once? So the, the way it's not studied very often, but fetal maternal hemorrhages often happen when there's a car accident. So it's spontaneous. It happens right away. Okay. This one they call spontaneous, but we can never know for sure. But the theory is that it happened over the course of two to three days. Okay. That's what my doctors have theorized, but I'll never know for sure. Yeah. But that was the decreased fetal movement. Um, it was him in distress, but I had no idea. Yeah. How would you? Especially for a baby, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And, you know, there's there's always those things that you learn after the fact. Yeah. Far too late. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll talk about all of that because it definitely led me to do quite a few things for advocacy because it was pretty upset yeah. with all the knowledge I didn't have. Yeah, I can't imagine. What happened? Like, how did you find out that, because your husband was obviously there, and you were still in the surgery. Yeah. Yeah, so it was really scary because I had never had a surgery before at all, um, let alone a major abdominal surgery right. that was emergent. Um, so I was, I was just, like, screaming, crying, trying to figure out what's going on. Where is my son? Is he okay? Why isn't anyone talking to me? And I remember the anesthesiologist was um, standing next to me. And he was, um, you know, saying that I needed to calm down. And I remember getting really frustrated at it. And I just kept on yelling. And then the next thing I knew, um, I woke up in a recovery room. Um, so what I found out later was that, uh, something was put into the IV line to, I guess, calm me down, which put me to sleep. So I woke up, um, about an hour later in a recovery room, completely alone. Um, I remember trying to sit up in the bed and, you know, I can't move, but I was trying to find my phone to get in touch with my husband. I have no idea what's going on. And, um... I remember opening up, uh, I had a message from Snapchat from him and he had taken a picture in his scrubs and it oh. said, happy birthday. Oh. And 
I don't know what it was, but I just knew that something was wrong. Like nothing about this felt right. And then two nurses just seemed to appear out of nowhere. Mm. Um, And they didn't say anything, didn't make eye contact, just wheeled me into what I now know is um, there was like a triage room in the NICU. Okay. And I went directly into there and everyone's crying. The doctors, the nurse, my husband, and everyone's just shaking their heads at me while I'm coming in. And, um, yeah, they told me, I don't know the exact words because everything's such a blur, but I do remember the NICU attending telling me that um, he had died and that um, just immediately asked if I wanted to hold him. Um, And, of course, you know, I did. Right. And... I give so much credit to that attending because she's the reason we spent so much time with him. She's the reason we have any pictures at all. Um, you know, she had asked if we wanted pictures and we were kind of numb, but she said, you know, you're going to want these. Yes. Um, she asked if we had any family members that we wanted to meet him. And uh, those are all things I never would have thought of. Mm-hmm. I couldn't wrap my head around what happened because you know we're holding Richard and he was just like Mm -hmm. he was perfect and he just looked like he was asleep and just nothing made sense it was like the whole world had turned upside down and you know when I saw his father finally hold him it was it was just so conflicting because I was so sad but also so happy yeah. to see him holding it. Yeah. Because it was something we had dreamed about. It was just, so it was one of those things where it's so heartbreaking, but it's mm-hmm. so beautiful at the same time. And I don't think anyone would understand that unless they had experience. Yeah. And they're like, okay, mm-hmm. I know what that means. Yeah. We call it like dichotomy. It's like the one hand you should be, you know, it's so sad, but on the one hand it's so beautiful because that's his son. Just such a beautiful thing for him to hold as a little boy. And actually, you said that, um, you know, of course I wanted to hold him. Well, I think, and Nicole probably agrees with me, like 50% of people say no. Like, So, so believe it or not, I mean, it's not a given. So I'm glad that, you know, you said yes right away. And also that you were, yeah. somebody advocated for you and said you need to do pictures. You know, you, you, that's really important for your family to meet him. Because it is. It was. I, th- I think that comes from a place of fear, too, because, like, if you've never seen someone who's passed away before or touched someone, like, you're just so afraid, you know? So I feel like a lot of parents are probably more scared than anything. Yeah, um, I will say that, I, so Richard was born um, at, like, 11 o'clock at night, and then he passed away an hour later, so it was, like, just after midnight. So the following day, it was like maybe a few hours later, um, the nurse had asked if, you know, they had the cuddle cot and they asked if we wanted to bring him in. And I said yes. But after I talked to my husband later, he admitted he was really standoffish about it because things had kind of sunk in at that point. And Richard did not look the same. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to, because we have photos of that too. And 
it's hard to look at them because it's one thing when he had just been born and then, you know, it's those things that you just don't realize. And then it's just like so hard to say, but you know, you know, you're holding your dead child and yeah. it's that reality is really hard to reconcile with. Mm-hmm. Um, even now I really wish I knew I struggled with it and um, I do wish we spent more time with him all those things that you think about later yeah yeah but you know you could have spent four days and you would have wished that you spent seven you know what i mean i'm telling you yeah it'll never be enough yeah yeah, it would never Mm -hmm. just the fact that you did spend time with him that was really beautiful and you'll never regret that you'll never regret that time you spent with him yeah you'll never regret it so um how long did you end up did you like go to a room and they brought the cuddle cot or how long did you stay in the hospital for because you had a c-section so you couldn't just leave so we were in the, let's see, we were in the hospital for about five wow. days, which is pretty unbelievable, mm-hmm. yeah. but um, it turned, so I was wondering why I couldn't hear any crying babies. Like I heard nothing the whole time we were in the hospital. So my husband said that we were in kind of like a, like an ICU part of the maternity ward. Okay. So it was much quieter there. And the hospital I delivered at um, actually had, because I was wondering how everyone kind of knew our story and they were so compassionate and wonderful. And it, it was nice not having to explain Mm -hmm. everything over and over. And then I wasn't leaving the room. So my husband told me that there was uh, a magnet outside of our door that alerted anyone who walked in that we had just had a loss. So they knew exactly what protocol to Mm -hmm. follow. And I really appreciated that because we needed that extra. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, so you yeah. kept Richard, you said you had the cuddle cot in the room and Richard was with you. Um, how long did you keep him in the room with you? And then like when you left, how, I mean, that had to be a hard leaving the hospital and leaving him there. Yeah, it's, I mean, right before that, we had, we had, you know, just had a brand new family car that I went from a compact car to like a family SUV. So we were ready for a family and to leave and see other parents that had just had a baby and they're being wheeled out with their wheelchairs. Yeah. And I remember making eye contact with the father as my husband's pushing the wheelchair down the hallway. And it was like he knew, like, right away because we had empty arms. And he went from, like, happy to all of a sudden his face just, like, dropped. And I was like, this is our reality now. Like, this is how people are going to look at us. And getting wheeled out of the hospital and... We were given um, this stuffed dog that, like, a stuffed animal that's, like, the size of a baby. So that's all I had to hold in my arms. So I wasn't empty-handed, but that and the um, the memory box, that's all we had. Right. And I just remember how quiet that car ride was home. And I joked throughout the whole pregnancy that I just wanted... Um, uh, Wawa Hoagie. <laughs> the sound shows I'm from South. 
that was all I wanted my whole pregnancy. And my husband pulled into the store and said, do you want the sandwich? And I was like, yes, but like, I don't even want to eat it. Like this is, yeah. And yeah, just so many things just didn't make sense and everything felt wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, that is one thing that should change at hospitals too with when you're being wheeled out, like no one else should be wheeled out with you. I remember experiencing the same thing after I lost my daughter and I actually ran and saw someone I was in college with and she was having, she had to do like the week I was. So she had had her baby and we're like both being wheeled out at the same time. And I just, I, you know, I couldn't even look at her. It was horrible. Yeah, because it's it's like you are being taunted yes. with exactly what you'll never have. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's not that you're not happy for them, but, like, you don't want to see them at that point. Oh, no, at that point, I was happy to say I was not happy for anyone. Yeah. Um, it, took a, it took a long time to get over the anger. Two questions, but the first one, um, what's the kindest thing that you remember somebody doing for you once you got home? Do you remember anything that really stuck out in your head? Yeah, so I, as a teacher, my, it's something I shake my head at, but I know other teachers will understand. My first concern was my students. (laughs) Um, I worried about how they were handling it because they all knew that I had had the baby. I wasn't back at work (laughs) and my best friend at work, um, she, she took care of everything. She fielded every single question from a coworker, every single question from a student. She went and spoke to every single one of my classes, broke the news to them. And she said it was one of the hardest things she's ever had to do because she said so many of those children just started to hate her because she was the one who brought that bad news. Oh, my gosh. But after the fact, um, a lot of them turned to her for support, even like a year later. And for her to handle everything, I was so worried about. And then on top of that, just being an amazing friend and stopping by my house and sitting with me while I was crying and being okay with being uncomfortable. Um, I needed that. That's so nice. We have a lot of people that say that like when I go back to work, um, I don't know like how I'm going to, there are people coming up to me saying like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Or I don't mind if they do, but I know they're going to feel awkward. So you need that like that middleman to like kind of like she was that person for you. A lot of people I find like don't really have that or don't know how to how to get that person without asking. You know what I mean? And then the other question, because um, I said there was two. What was something that made your grief journey really hard, or the hardest part about your grief journey? And then more specifically, when you got home, like what makes it hard now? What's the hardest thing now, looking back on it? When my husband and I uh, arrived back home, our front living room, as soon as you walk in the house, uh, was filled with all of our baby shower mm-hmm. presents. The entire room. Oh, my gosh. And 
you know, we had purposely left everything because the nursery was not finished and we thought there was time to go through everything. And I remember looking at everything. So he had moved everything up into the nursery, closed the door, and we agreed to return most of the items that we could. And, you know, he handled all of that. But I remember um, my sister was pregnant at the same exact time. And she's like my best friend. And uh, she was also pregnant with a boy. We we're only um, a few weeks apart. Oh, and wow. I remember just sobbing and taking apart one of the diaper cakes from the shower. Mm-hmm. And I was like, she's going to need these. Like, I can't use them. I might as well just give them to her. And that moment is just so visceral. It's just like stuck in my memory. But then, you know, subsequently, just my relationship with her over, gosh, like probably the next year was beyond difficult um, because neither of us knew how to handle it. And she was incredibly patient with me. Um, I think that's the reason that our relationship survived and we're as close as we are now. But knowing that she went on to have a healthy pregnancy while I was so happy for her and her son is like one of my, now one of my living daughters, like best friends. it was mm-hmm. it was hard. I was Aww. just so jealous, and everything hurt. Yeah, I get that. How far apart are you and your sister in age? Like, are you, were you always mm-hmm. close? Uh, we were close once I became a teenager, and I was like cool enough to yeah. hang out with her. So she's older, my older sisters. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're um, about like six, seven years apart. Oh, so you have multiple and, sisters? Uh, yes, I am. Um, I come from a family of seven. Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow yeah so this is my sister that um i'm closest with and yeah we've um just really bonded but it wasn't always that easy yeah when we were little kids. yeah yeah i hear that about sisters i don't have one but <laughs> I, hear that. Going. I hear that <laughs> what is one thing or can be multiple things that you would say helped you the most while you were navigating your grief or just going through it when I was like first in my grieving, really social media helped, which sounds kind of crazy to say. That's surprising. Yeah. yeah. Not social yeah. media with like all my friends who are pregnant and everything, but right. um, connecting with other moms because I felt like no one in my immediate social circle understood me. And they wanted to provide support. They wanted to be there. Gosh, everyone wanted to take me out to lunch. That was like their big thing was just to feed me, but no one got it. And some of these conversations, like I didn't have the patience to be for all of those like niceties and all the euphemisms. Like my grief was so raw. I would just say exactly how I was feeling and what I was thinking. And it was ugly. And I ended up connecting with another mom whose um, daughter was born Uh, just two days before Richard. And we actually went on to both have rainbow pregnancies that were nearly identical, which is so strange. But she ended up being one of those go-to people 
that I just met through Instagram. And we talked a lot in that early time. And that was really helpful. But otherwise, um, I attended support groups at the local hospital. And that was really helpful. And then um, I read so many books. As an English teacher, I enjoy reading. But that was one of the things I could escape into was every single like baby loss book or journey I could find. I just wanted to make sense of what I was going through and try to see if how I felt was normal. Yeah. And how, like, see if there was just someone else. I was like, okay, someone else has felt this, felt this and fought these things. It's okay. So being an English teacher, did you also journal or write? A little bit in the early days. Um, Okay. I actually didn't start writing about everything until about two years ago. So it took several years for me to come around to that. But when I I started seeing um, a therapist that was specialized in bereavement and baby loss, and that was one of the things she had suggested. So I did try sometimes, but um, I actually did a lot of like those adult coloring books that were like meditative. Mm -hmm. Um, I did a yeah. lot of that and, um, like, meditation and things. You know why I think writing is so important, um, and not just for bereavement, for anything? Because your kids, you can say that your kids can look back and say, yeah, they know they have a brother, but in the same sense, they don't know how you mm-hmm. felt, and they can just kind of read their mom's feelings at the time. It's so, I don't have that. Like, we don't have that of our parents and our grandparents. I don't have those kind of writings. My grandmother lost her her son, her firstborn, um, at a full-term pregnancy. My aunt lost her firstborn at full-term pregnancy. Neither of them talked about it. Um, my grandma since passed away. Yeah. Um, but my aunt, she still doesn't talk about it. But how nice would it be for her to have written or write something? You know what I mean? That can be passed down to, uh, to keep his legacy alive also. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, generationally, mm-hmm. like, right. Like, it's it's relatively mm-hmm. new that we're so open about grief. and talk. I mean, this is a podcast dedicated <laughs> to this topic. <laughs> And yeah, you're right. I mean, it's, it was just always encouraged. It was so stigmatized, so taboo. You're not supposed Mm -hmm. to talk about it. You're supposed to deal with it. Okay. You gave birth on a Friday. You're going to be back at work on Monday. Like really difficult, but you know, we can't talk about these things. And yeah. So, I mean, Right now, it's uh, the writings are nice because it's been really therapeutic, really healing for me. Um, even you know, seven years later, it's I'm still healing, still on this journey. I'm just going to ask you what year, because you said it was years ago, and I wanted to ask you how many years ago. What's his birthday? It was. Uh, so he was born May 16th, 2016. Oh, that's, that's nice to remember that. <laughs> Five, sixteen, yeah. sixteen. Yeah. Yes. Um, how long did you stay out of work for? And like, how was your, how were your administration and things like that with coming back? Or did you have only a certain amount of time? Because I know being a teacher, it's a little bit harder than just having a, you know, a nine to five job. Yeah. So when I, uh, so like I said, Richard was born in May. So that oh, meant I had weird. maybe like six weeks left mm-hmm. in the school year. I never once thought about coming back early. Like I just immediately sent an email and I said, um, I'll see everyone in mm-hmm. September. I am not coming back. And uh, which looking back now, like I was non-tenured at the time. 
I had only been working at that school for, that was only my second year there. And it was, you know, it's scary. And I, it's also scary because um, I didn't know to apply for FMLA to protect my job. Mm. Nothing. Mm. I just, no one told me, no one advised me. So I just left. I used up whatever sick days I had and then went on unpaid leave. And then once, um, so we don't get paid in the Mm -hmm. summer. So that was just even more time. I had no money. So we're just on um, my husband's paycheck. So actually, um, I was going stir crazy about eight weeks in and I was worried that I wasn't contributing financially. I took a summer job at my school and I worked with the custodial staff and I cleaned mm-hmm. classrooms. Oh my gosh. And made a paycheck that way. And I don't know what I was thinking because it's so crazy. I was eight weeks postpartum. I got a note saying I could return back to work and I was just scraping gum off the bottom of desks. Um, <laughs> I'm, and the custodial staff, like they all mm-hmm. knew what had happened and it was yeah. like some tiptoed around me, but they were, I hadn't really known them very well before that. And they were amazing. Oh my gosh. They were the best people I could possibly have to reintroduce <laughs> me to society because I didn't know how to have yeah. small talk. Nothing. Right. And yeah. then I was really scared to go back into the school building because the last time I'd been there, mm-hmm. I was pregnant. Right. And I didn't want to go back to my classroom. But um, so doing that, so I took that summer job because I didn't have any paid mm-hmm. options. In New Jersey yeah. and almost every other state, once your baby dies, you don't qualify for that family leave. New Jersey stipulates that you have to care for another. Okay. And they say that you no longer qualify if your baby dies because the state has told me personally um, that I'm only caring for myself. That's and not enough. Anymore. No. And that was, um, that was like vital income that I really could have used. Yeah. Because it also protects like health benefits and I was at risk for mm-hmm. losing them. Because I was on unpaid leave. I was just fortunate that my job was really supportive. My superintendent, he was very understanding. No questions asked. The board of ed approved my leave. And that was fine. And then um, I came back the following September. So after you came back to school and started working again, I know you created a nonprofit called Start Healing Together, which is kind of how I met you. And um, can you just explain basically how it came about and um, what your mission is. When I returned to work in 2016, no one in that building knew how to support me. It was a lot of stilted conversation, a lot of um, silence that was very awkward. Some people literally ran in the other direction when they saw me. My Mm. students did not know how to approach me. I had many of them for a second year because at that time I taught juniors and seniors. They felt uncomfortable being in my class because they didn't know how to handle it. And it was like this elephant in the room that no one is discussing. So fast forward to 2021, 
you know, in the pandemic, I had uh, just had my second daughter and I'm like, you know what? We're done growing our family. I am really fired up still <laughs> about <laughs> the lack of options and the lack of support for returning to work after losing a baby. It's ridiculous. And I reach out to uh, one of my coworkers who is now Start Healing Together's um, vice president, George Kemery, and we teach English together. And gosh, he barely knew me when Richard had died. And he was so steadfast at my side that whole time. And I reach out to him. I said, I have this idea, not really sure what to do, but um, you know, I don't th want it to be a support group, but I want to do something to help people, other teachers that are coming back to work. What do you want to do? And then we started brainstorming from there and it snowballed. So basically what Start Healing Together is, is that we are a nonprofit that supports educators um, returning to work or experiencing pregnancy loss and infertility. So if you've um, lost a baby, whether it's a chemical pregnancy, stillbirth, infant loss, anything, uh, we provide support. So we advocate for leave rights. We work with labor unions and administration to make sure that that contract is followed and that any leave option that we can provide is advocated for. And we look at how many sick days, how many personal days, what's available in that particular state, because we work with educators across the country. And any conversation that you can think about returning to work, we have on behalf of that educator. Because our focus is that we want that parent to take care of themselves. We will have all those difficult conversations about sick leave banks and what your contract says and if you have bereavement days and how many days etc all those things that your grief brain can't think about yeah so we handle all of that um we always talk with the parent first um i handle that part i listen to the story i connect with that parent and try to figure out exactly what they need because every single educator and Really, we work with other professions as well now, and we try to figure out, okay, what is your workplace like? What are the demands? What are your concerns? Um, what kind of roadblocks are you going to hit? How do we get past them? And then when um, someone is experiencing infertility, we work to make sure that um, there's no retaliation if they come to work late after an appointment. And we make sure that for however many months they're going through these treatments, there's a support plan in place. Because ultimately, we are looking at creating these individualized plans to support each person. Because they should focus on family building and grieving and taking care of themselves. Because it is just mm -hmm. a job. Right. So, but in, especially in education, it's all about self-sacrificing. And we want to make sure that these parents are putting themselves first when most people will not remind them of that. They'll say, what about your students? Who's your substitute? Do you have lesson plans? So we make mm -hmm. sure that they don't have to worry about any of that. So beautiful. How are, you, how are these families, or how are these educators, especially when you just go through a loss, like, like how you had, 
you, your first thought wouldn't be to reach out and find some, you know, group that supports educators. So how are they finding you? So a lot of this is through um, either social mm -hmm. media. Um, we've built this platform where we are connected with um, about maybe 50 other nonprofits around the world. <laughs> so we have a very expansive base. And we get a lot of referrals from different hospitals. Um, different OBs okay. will um, refer us. That's awesome. And then yeah. we've connected with so many labor unions that when someone hears something happening at their workplace, they'll say, you know what, you really should look into Start Healing Together. And then I usually get messages or phone calls or texts and then go from there. It's so sad that it even has to be a thing. Like, this all has to be a thing. But it's so yeah. amazing that, like, just somebody hearing about you. I always say that, like, the more you talk about it, somebody's, somebody knows somebody that's, that's going to experience this. And if they say, oh, my gosh, I know someone that can help you, that's amazing. So I'm so glad that you do that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, it's, um, I always say that it's funny because, um, you know, I'm basically meeting all of these mm -hmm. strangers and we are instantly sharing our most vulnerable and personal story. Yes. And we're like, what's your story? <laughs> okay, here's mine. <laughs> and okay, now we've gotten through like the most traumatic experience of our lives. Okay. Exactly. So now we know each other really well. Yeah. <laughs> How can we help? And we're bothered. <laughs> yes. So it's, um, it's something that I didn't expect to find so much healing from it, um, but but I also feel like I'm in a good enough mental and emotional space that I can handle it because that was my concern starting out is, mm -hmm. am I in the right space in my grief journey to handle this or is it going to feel overwhelming? But um, I've actually, uh, it's been really invigorating and I like advocating for others and really giving everything I wished I had it exactly time. so for any awesome. you know new family that's experiencing pregnancy or infant loss do you have any advice to give them um open-ended there any kind of advice or anything to yeah. share with them anything you wish someone anything you wish someone told you so I would say that the one piece of advice I would give is that how you grieve is going to be unique to you there is no one right way to grieve. There's no one right or wrong way to grieve. Every single journey is going to be different. And I wish that someone told me that my feelings were normal and that it was okay to talk about my son. I wasn't weird <laughs> or just another sad mom <laughs> sharing my story, which I have been told. <laughs> but... Just normalizing that and destigmatizing grief because everyone is going to mm -hmm. lose someone. Yes. It is inevitable. We're all going to have this experience. So we need to start talking about it because the one thing that helps the most is surrounding yourself with a supportive community. Because when you're alone going through this, it's, it's torture. And as bad as grief is, you need to have someone there to help you, even if it's just one other person. How did your relationship with your husband, how was it like the first year, the first couple of months after, you know, coming home to that empty house without that baby that you were supposed to have? Mm. My marriage definitely took a hit. It was hard because um, my husband and I have been together now for 
21 years. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so we, yeah. yeah, so we met in high school. So we've been together a very long time and we were always very open about how we were feeling, but we grieved very differently. I couldn't get out of bed. Whereas he's much more of a doer. Um, he grieves through doing things. Um, he would do yard work and I would just lay in bed. Um, I, it was hard to get out of bed, to shower, to eat. And then when he returned to work, um, he would call me and remind me to eat. He would pack me lunch before I left. Um, but I remember being so angry with him because he wasn't grieving the same way. Yeah. And I wanted to, I just felt like he didn't care, which of mm -hmm. course he did. Yeah. But in that moment, I was like, wait, you're not immobile. You're not constantly crying. You're not constantly talking about our son. You must be grieving the wrong way. You don't care as much as I do. But he just had a whole different process. And that took a lot of therapy mm -hmm. to figure out. <laughs> but um, that's where I credit my therapist because kind of helping me realize that to look outside mm -hmm. of myself. Um, but I think that's one of the ways like our relationship ended up working <laughs> and we're still together today because I had to kind of look outside of myself and understand that what he was doing was fine. And it did open up a lot of conversations with him that were important mm -hmm. that needed to be had. Yeah. Do you like realize that like, oh, he is grieving. Like you could probably look back and see ways that he was grieving. You just were grieving differently, you know? Last podcast, Mia was saying like she went in her husband's car and he had like the little funeral card in there. And that's why she realized, oh, he is grieving. It's just different, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, he was, he was just like much more private about it. Yeah. But that's how he is. He's more of a private person. Whereas, you know, I, you know, share yeah. the story of Richard with the world. Right? right. But yeah, it's just looking at recognizing that everyone's a little bit different with how they handle it. And that's okay. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share? With yeah. So just say, um, I guess the last thing I would want to say is that for, well, two things. Number one, I am the uh, New Jersey ambassador for Count the Kicks. And if anyone is unfamiliar, they are a evidence-based stillbirth prevention campaign. Originally based in Iowa, but now they're national. And I did not learn about them until I had my first rainbow pregnancy. Incredibly high risk. But my MFM told me to check out their app that was free and use it to count my kicks. And he taught me how to do it correctly because I didn't know with Richard. And I since became an advocate for them about two years ago. So about the same time I started mm -hmm. to start healing together. And that's been in amazing. They're doing incredible work, you know, advocating for expectant parents. And then for start healing together, I mean, just share the word, let people know. And really, a loss doesn't have to have just happened. We are here for any part of that journey. Um, and then if anyone is looking to support a coworker, a friend, a family member, you know, we're here too to talk about that and see how we can provide support. But we're always here to help. That's perfect. Uh, um, I have the portrait studio yes. and I... Um, one time, I don't know where we were at, I don't, I don't know if it was the walk, 
um, one of, you know, resolved walks, but um, I took the Count the Kicks cards and I have them at my studio by the door. And I always tell families, um, because not just, you know, from you guys, but from working with families all these years, it's such a misconception that you shouldn't feel your baby move, you know, when they say, well, you're 38 weeks, you know, there's a lot of less room, you're not, yeah. you are going to feel them. Yes. That's not true. That's such a yeah. wrong thing to say. Just try to give out that card and explain to them. If you feel any, you know, but you go on this because it's so important, especially if like the experience yeah. of selling, it's like advocate for yourself, call your doctor. It's okay if you call your doctor heart test. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, one of the things that, uh, so when you become an ambassador for Count the Kicks, they encourage you to figure out what your project okay. is going to be. So as a teacher, um, I decided to teach about um, stillbirth prevention and count the kicks to high mm -hmm. school health classes. So I go to um, parts of New Jersey that have like mm -hmm. high teen pregnancy rates. Oh, wow. And I go into those high school health classes and I teach about the program and what it is. And sometimes there are expectant mm -hmm. you know, parents in that classroom or they have a family member because the way I look at it is that you don't have to have a loss to learn about this. Right. It's it's preventing that from happening. Yes. Yes. So it's all about trying to, I look at it as like educating this younger mm -hmm. generation so that they can share this information and then they're mm -hmm. better equipped, you know, if they ever decide to grow their own family. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. Which I'm sure most of them will, you know, so it's it's an important it's it's health it's like a health class it's it's part of health they, they need to know absolutely it. um yeah that's really cool so have you gone to like schools in cumberland and salem county because that's near us gloucester yes so um i've gone into uh a few places in cumberland county uh, nice. because that was where i one of the schools i taught at initially so I've worked in there because they have the highest team pregnancy oh, really? in the state at wow. 15%. Yes. yes. So, and um, I actually have helped um, some high school students that have had losses as well mm -hmm. uh, because the school nurse, you know, at a different school, like they might reach out and say, we don't know how to provide support. So it's trying to use that network that we have and say, okay, well, here's like a resource in your area and here's what you can do. Yeah, I remember you called me for one, probably that one. I remember um, the school nurse contacting you, but that's, that's amazing. You're going to help a lot of, well, you probably have helped yeah. a lot of people. You're just going to help a lot of people. people. Thank <laughs> you so much for sharing so. that with us. <laughs> yes. Thanks for having me. Jackie, thank you so much for being here and sharing the story of your baby with us. If you want to send some love to Jackie and her beautiful family, email us at NicoleWithTheBlindsided.com or DesireeTheBlindsided.com. Be sure to check out her nonprofit, Start Healing Together, at StartHealingTogether.com. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to the latest episode of the Blindsided Podcast. We truly appreciate your support and time you spent with us. If you have a personal story you'd like to share on the show, don't hesitate to reach out to us. You can send us an email at NicoleAtTheBlindsided.com or DesireeAtTheBlindsided.com. For more episodes, make sure to follow on your favorite podcast app. Just search The Blindsided Podcast and hit that follow button. You can also connect with us on social media too. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at The Blindsided Podcast. We love engaging with our listeners and hearing your thoughts on each episode. 
And before you go, consider leaving a rating and review for our show. Your feedback helps us reach more listeners who might find value in the stories and discussions we share. Once again, thank you for listening and being a part of the Blindsided community.